Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Second Act Actors. I'm your host, Dr. Janet McMorty, and I'm still a medical doctor simultaneously trying to pursue a career in acting. This is my Sundance Film Festival Part 2 episode, and I'm calling this Sundance Potpourri, because I have for you today a bunch of little mini interviews that I had the privilege of doing during the Sundance Film Festival. So these are all interviews that I did with people that I met at the beautiful Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. So please enjoy Sundance Potpourri. This interview is with director Ian Bawa. Ian is from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and his short film, My Son Went Quiet, premiered at Slam Dance. Now, Slam Dance is a film festival that's just adjacent to Sundance. Literally, it's just down the road, and it has an incredible array of indie films that I was able to check out. I was able to watch Ian's film at Slam Dance. Again, it's called My Son Went Quiet, and oh my gosh, it is incredible. I I bawled silently. I didn't make too much noise in the theater. I just had tears streaming down my face. It is incredibly powerful. It is based on Ian's true life story. You hear Ian's voice in the film. You also hear the real, a little, little bit of spoiler alert, real 911 call that occurred um, during Ian's life. So definitely if you can get your hands on a copy of this film or go see a screener of it, it is absolutely incredible. Please enjoy my conversation with incredibly talented director, Ian Bauer. Tell me your story. How did you get into directing? <laughs> uh, I'm a failed law student. <laughs> I dropped out of law school many years ago uh, and then uh, found my way to film. Eventually, uh, actually I worked at radio for a while, found my way to film, did every single job to the point where I was like really good at perfumacing because I did shit everything. And then I just, it just wasn't in uh, my friends. And I made a bunch of movies that did well, played TIFF, played around the world. And then uh, I just wanted to direct and to bike tour. So I just started doing it, started getting hired for it. But I already had a name as a producer, so just grind, grind. That's awesome. That's how it is. So a lot of people, again, some theme that comes through like podcasts, yep. is that a lot of people starting in one career and then changed careers into the entertainment industry. Yeah. A lot of times it's because they move really creative in their upbringing, but some well-intentioned, or maybe not some well-intentioned people in their lives said, you know, maybe you should go to law school. Maybe you should do something that's a reasonable career path. Did you feel that? Yeah, like yeah. I said, I think uh, I'm a I'm a first in South Asian immigrant. So right? like yeah. I had the parents who were like doctor, lawyer, do something good with your life. Yeah. Even though my both my parents were essentially musicians, and uh, they they didn't. My mom bought a master at sitar. My dad played doubles, and uh, they just were like, no. And we came to Canada. You make it. And I, I, it was after my mom passed away. That's when I had to like reshift my life. I'm like, I'm not happy. I'm not going to be being a lawyer. I don't figure this out. The one thing that makes me happy is watching movies and talking about movies. How do I make that into a career? And it just slowly evolved into like making. I, I've always been addicted to making things, whether it was music or film or something. Some like I, and just eventually I go my skill elevating and storytelling. Like I think that's my story. Yeah, I'm, I'm a like. I'm a healthy narcissist, <laughs> so I like to tell stories about, yeah. you know, my stuff, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's just, it, it's weird, I, I, and I, I tell people all the time, like, I, I do a lot of public speaking where I'm like, we can make money doing this, that's what I do for a living, I owe properties, plural, and I'm doing fine, yes. as you know, so, yeah, you can do I think there's so much of an idea of like a career in whimsy because it is so whimsical, right? Like how dare you be so whimsical when there are other things that are like, this is what will contribute to society. Right. And I know for myself, you know, coming from a career in medicine, you know, this is a societally acceptable career. Right. I know. But I think what I love about what we're saying is the storytelling aspect, because what I find, and correct me if I'm not here about legacy, is what gets transferred from generation to generation is not my work in medicine, as much as I'd love to think it would be. It's the stories that we tell 
to pass on. Yeah. And I think you're storytelling in every aspect of our lives, including things like the sciences, the logical career paths. Now, and that storytelling, I think, actually transform generate take. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. It's one of those things, like, I struggle a lot of time being like, I am not doing something worthwhile. Right. I am not doing something that will change the world we were rewarding and actually But, but... There's that aspect of storytelling where people create documents. They, they tell this information that's very important, contains that, can create thought or meanings or emotions. And that's the thing, like, I, I've said now, like, I've done a lot of, like, thoughts of, like, what do I like making? And a lot of it, I'm like, I like to tell stories that hits the heart. Like, I like to go through a fun world of whatever, and at the end, hit the heart. So at the end of the movie, you go, huh. That meant something. Yeah. I did not waste 10 minutes or 30 minutes or any minutes of my time. Wow. And I think that's, right, to me, giving up at a sunset, that's yeah. creating something in a front of Yeah. So, you know. Speaking of hitting the hearts, <laughs> your movie, when we are at, here in Park City, Utah, we are at their, yeah, Sundance, but also, just as important, Slamdance, the other festival that's here, yes. where your film is premiering. And I got to see a screener of it at Sold Out, is that your film is called My Son Went Wyatt, and I kid you not, and I'm not blowing schools up your butt. I didn't have it. I had tears streaming down my face. Really? Oh, yeah. That's great. It is so <laughs> moving. And I know a bit of the story behind the film, right. but I would love if you would share the story behind the film. Yeah. Because it's so powerful. Yeah. Uh, well, Slime Dance 1 is like, it's like, it's funny, it's an it's interesting festival because it's like parallel to Sundance. It, 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 in existence because Sundance was so big that yeah. they were like, let's make the sister festival that's just as cool. But it's like the hipster where Christopher Nolan and all these like big directors started out. So it's like that thing where you're like, you start there and then you do Sundance. Right. Um, so it's great. And it's like same party, same yeah. vibes. Um, but the movie uh, started out as like this short story after my dad died. I, I wrote this like story of just like me grieving. <laughs> and it was yeah. this, uh, it was about this. Uh, father and son and they come back from a funeral and the son starts stop sorry stops talking and they uh uh they start seeing a shadow on the wall and the kid thinks it's his mom and the dad kind of accepts it as and like this shadow on the wall probably is your mom and the shadow you never fully see a room but it kind of has these like weird yes. moments where you kind of focus it you never physically see it get up and go do something like it kind of does weep so you know it exists um and it's the idea of grief and how grief stays with us and it's a, like, I'm not going to spoil the movie, but there's, like, a twist in it that, like, where you think it's going somewhere, but yeah. somewhere else. Um, and, yeah, it's a movie, like, honestly, it struggled with it for a long time. It's personal, like, look like Hurts died. <laughs> and so it, it just comes from a place of, like, grief sucks. Yeah. And sometimes it never stops something. Yeah. And I was also worried that it might be grief porn. And I don't think it is at this point, but, like, it's something I do struggle with sometimes. Cause, but, you know, grief is so confusing, so... Whatever I interpret is fine. What other people interpret, and I'm happy people want to see it. Yeah, it is a beautiful film. It, again, I was very, very moved by it. I know a lot of people in the theater that I was in were very moved. And it was very interesting because in the, the order of the shorts that we saw, you came right after probably the quote-unquote funniest one. Comic really interest, right? Everyone was laughing. You was kind of like, ha ha, yeah, yeah. And then yours came on, and I don't think many people knew what to expect. Love it in the best way. Yeah, right? no, that. Yeah. And I think also there was a, and maybe this is going to sound a little crass, uh, but yeah, yeah, because yeah. of uncomfortableness. Uncomfortableness, yeah, great. And I think there was also a really humanizing piece to your actors. Right, they felt like. And we, we are in, you know, Park City, Utah, and here is, I guess, the, I'm assuming we have a Sikh? Yes. Yeah. Here is these beautiful, humanizing people. Well, let me go, okay, here's a story, and I bet part of it is going to be about... It's going to be a Punjabi family it's story. Exactly. But that shit. about the Middle East, <laughs> this is going to be hit yeah. me in the face with yeah. it. Yeah. But no, it was just, here is a story about grief that we all related to. And yeah, there were a lot of little titters. Good. In the best way. I, I had a... I had a... I'm going to call it a uh, private screening uh, in Toronto for whatever long story short. But uh, it, it was part of like kind of a series of bunch of shorts that played and uh, that happened. Yeah. A bunch of people were laughing. And this weird woman next to me, she knew I was the filmmaker. She went, is this a comedy? And I was like, oh I turned to her and was like, shut up, go, watch the movie. 
But but it was funny. People were so uncomfortable because they didn't know where it was going. Yes. But that, by the end, everyone was like in tears. Yep. And uh, yeah, like it was a really good reaction. And honestly, I love making films so people don't know what the fuck is going to go on. That is that is the winning combination. The yeah. predictability. It's too much in a world. You know, the joke is Simpson did it. Simpson has done most things. Yeah. And so now we have to like find a way to reinvent the Simpson or reinvent the new idea. So like if I can find a way to like trick people into thinking yeah. thing and we go this way or just new direction, great. Yeah. Always be different or always be bigger. I love it. Do you have anything that you are looking forward to coming up this year? Well, I'm making my first feature. Uh, oh, yeah. So nice. thank you. In like eight months, nine months. So uh, the stress of that. Uh, <laughs> And uh, yeah, I have a new short uh, that I made uh, that uh, was part of the Canadian Film Center uh, that I just graduated from or finished. And so that be going somewhere at some point. So yep. I don't know if it was back here or somewhere, but you know, it's going to start its festival circuit. This one is just beginning. So one on the go right now. And uh, I'm shooting a TV show with my dog uh, for CBC in Canada. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. So uh, we're traveling around right now. And we're almost done that. So very cool. A lot of stuff on the go, but that's- yeah. Yeah. And your premiere of My Son Went Quiet is when? It's uh, Wednesday the 24th at 3.15. Perfect. At the Euro in Park City, Utah. That part of the Slam Dance Film Festival. This interview is with second act actor John Mawson. John is a merchant marine turned actor. He has a really cool project that he talks about. It is an audio drama. Ugh, we love podcasts. Yes, my podcast is a non-fictional podcast, but this is a fictional audio drama, fictional podcast. Definitely check it out. I'll put the link to it in the show notes below. Please enjoy my conversation with merchant marine turned actor, John Mawson. So tell me your story. What brings you to Sundance? How did you get into this entertainment uh, well, I'm here sometimes with my co-directed career for the show we on Sensible that we've made, TV, which we, uh, we'll be launching, uh, and Rambuli the deck and Kidul. Uh, so we're very excited about that. It's been a major project in many years. We went here. And so that's like we've done. I came here you know, on our side, like, here, and she was like, oh, years ago. Uh, and just to ride me on the stage, so it's like, I need to know what's going in this world. So, uh, I came along on the civil roof. Deer in the headlight for the Yeah. This sign really enjoying it. Awesome. Do you know there's a big difference between 12 years ago when he came and now? Let's see the big difference for him. Um, it's a lot more slick in a way. Content wide outside, you know, always oh, yeah. me. Don't have to spend a ton of life trying to find somebody to charge the phone. Which is what everybody was doing for still, because those phones lasted the whole day. Amazing. Yeah, so that was a big difference. That was a big difference. Our phones do better. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. And as to uh, how I got into the, is the industry. Uh, well, I had a worst job at, and this you love to do it much, maybe, with uh, that got me for 13 years, qualified as a Schultz counted. Uh, and then after that, I came ashore and I got into all oh, my old insurance things. Of course, it's but it is not. There's the evolving day, pretty but very good. Maybe 20 years. And to build that time out of, you know, and increasing amount of time through interacting. Uh, and what did your community feel it here and your favorite? Is the entire great board, very good run, and might have been my homie style. And like more and more, uh, as one day I go for the, you know, there should be grabbing lines about that. It'd be the way. And the comment be back to not careful. And like, I don't know, I do, I went from school. I did um, 18 of us postgraduates. Also, we went in a, at a very good school in Nile Dark School. Uh, and that I was myself military world at that tour. And it did quite well in London. Uh, but I was aware that I was up against an advice of engineering. Quite, yeah, yeah. Resumes, they're sure. Yeah, right. And I didn't. I was needed. <laughs> and so I came out here for a look see in 2002. And well, if I think that's. My best mates would get a good art, and I could get an ad, and I would have a visa. Maybe I'll come out here with a fair one. And then I got, I thought, you know, I'd leave all of your indie with you to sample out, and I did a couple of best of you played. Yeah. Uh, and, and as a result, you better have to do it. And I came out there in February 2011. Hello, I'm still here. <laughs> you know what's interesting? The visa travels through a lot of my podcast is this feeling of when you get to this industry later in life. You're behind. The train is the left station and you're constantly feeling like you have to adjust and work. Tell us people who've been doing this for wanting. 
So do you have advice for people to try and, if that is the case, catch up to the trade? Or like, just any advice in general for trying to get into the industry later on? The advice there to popular things I'd say is firstly play to start. In my case, I haven't been a business background. I'm very organized in that business. Quite. I've got cool now in acting well in a very delicate way. Getting my reels, getting my headshots, getting my rap designation. Finding the right projects. The second, mate, make your own stuff. I you know, I made uh, a web series with the other day of why being allowed. But in some friends on the rest series, it's did well, but they got it. Okay. And they're not even. Because the, I then did a short film, and in fact, the streetway, but that short film of a run-up sandbox, 2012. Well, I, that was another reason I came, had him out, came out. He's next year. Oh, the yeah. sandbox. He was going well. For sure. So, wait, what I'm the thought. Set up together, make short films, make web series, make what, make, you know, what like movies if you can. Our case, make an onion movie. Just have a Chinese Korean experiment to tell our story off purely for the end. Here, yeah, tell me more of that. How did you develop it? How did you get the cast? How did... Well, we're going to be doing a panel about this of your minutes, so you'll yeah. come along and tell once you have it's brief. And Brian, he had a suggestion that a stream filed mine about it. Um, so he's based in the Chiefs of your ship, at Fargo's ship in World War II, which I was obviously aware of, both my back and C would make a break of the audio experience. And we said, well, what's the motive? And they said, make it play here. I believe it was well sent. And I, so we reached out to the thing. A, stayed that day. We moved down to A, this. What's he? He got here. This. And managed to put it together with it. Being the we both Ryan Cox, since I helped with it. And then I'll end almost very sad stuff here. I'll leave you. And that's it. It went well. And Harry now, and he started the book and bought it in new. Because, um, because it was, uh, what that? Oh, of course, that we did so easy. They could be in there. Well, how we, like that? Some, some had her juniors, some we eat islands, uh, some used for it on the private seat. Yeah. And then they've been to work, and then he was nearby, and all we had to potty set meters in the family gun bar tree were in the final area to give. It's my doobies. And then we pop it right out. Yeah. That thing's quite obvious as well. <laughs> Very proud of it. And um, Stevie now caught, I believe, you know. And my God, it's a milk of it's just... Yeah, that's the lower. I mean, cut either your side. Oh, my gosh. Don't have to clean your CNN stuff. And I have a black and white print of the ad videos cameras here at the same time. We have confirmed. Had a black and white crate, so three of the other headphones are the mine. In this head, we have been distraught. Oh, my God. I need to tell you what it's reading. Read a deal word. Like, no, they're not Yeah. If that's not a cure for imposter syndrome, I don't know what it is. What you thought? You are meant to be here. What you're meant to be thinking. I could tell you. Believe it. I do think that when you come to this place, so many things like life experience that people who are in actors. May not have a body. We may have much more tears on the hammer on the stage. Do they have a light looks? Whereas in my case of our Tyler CEO, as a CEO of Vice President of a company, you know, and it's so much not for a role of a Vice President of a company. Wow. Well, I've been there. Not been there. Yeah. So I have a, I have a genuine list. So it's usually, I have to go over it. But the other thing that I find a lot, even travel in Snow, but really a lot of like, is that there is a little, there's a lack of almost desperated that I find because he had to legit nice foundation of not just financial well that stuff, but also real arts versus. Do you think that's the case? Well, like, a random when you're on this shop. I think I, well, I have learned, as we all have too, um, to enjoy the audition process for South yeah. and not think of it as getting a job, but you get to get a little bit in a together And many times, I found that I got a job if there's something immediately here on my route. At a recommendation, and then they regular a, a job on a plane back in the UK, and it's the cover now. Um, they was from what else? Oh, these these the old ratty glad up to me. Said, "Oh, but it's Don Morgan now. He's yeah, I know, no, he's fine. Here we go." Yeah, that kind of validation uh, is very important. So if you do a good audition and they like you, they'll bring you food. Yeah, absolutely, and they bring you back. Is there anything you're looking forward to coming up this year? Some projects you have coming up? Well, yes, this. What you to this? And this is inkable. That's our big project. And we, so that's why I rate down as the skin was still in the screenplay, the audio player can hit. Why was 15 years left? 
I have that tea. I wrote film version. I wrote oh, TV series work shit out. Then I have to put, oh, right, check with the ears. But what I think my is that this didn't part of the story with no narration. Um, yeah, you know, with a big cast, loads of location. Only the big three sex don't know it. Yeah, him either. Yeah. It's the West Silly. With what? Is it out? Do you know eating all the biscuits? Isn't the world peers? Um, can we just tell you really quick? Do we have a panel to get to? What was the reason for what was that shares in making it into an audio? Was there a hide that? Like, why audio? Why not from fine building as supposed Oh, why early? Because why add actually? You can tell to this one. Yeah, it is. And we heard Oliver. And that well known story. With that nice feeling, oh, I'm going to dust and I keep in the near. Whereas of our own, it was private. It left. Mark, the God is living so to do. And so, obviously, we really want to make this as a TV series. Good, go for it. And keep making it. She got it. You don't know how long it is. It is stunning as a We were to make the eye of you and you who were going to let him with the upwards. It's like, what a stick. It was more to do with the one. We've done freely. He's like, show out with all that. Where do people find it, or can they find it new? They can't find it yet, because we haven't premiered it. Thank you. We do the custom art, you'll be mad. But it's all. That is fantastic. Wonderful. This uh, clip is from the live panel at the Cannon House at the Sundance Film Festival. You will hear the voices of Chris Nash, the director of In a Violent Nature, and Pierce Dirks, the director of photography of In a Violent Nature. In a Violent Nature is the only Canadian film to have been shown at uh, Sundance this year. It is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I was so privileged to be able to attend the premiere of this film and so, so privileged to get to know these two fine, incredibly talented gentlemen during my time at the Sundance Film Festival. Please enjoy a little clip it from their live panel at the Cannon House. You have a kind of a unique path out of this film where we talk about the sort of switching of roles and how that went about. We've, we've always worked together on different projects, sometimes Nash doing effects, Sometimes, like, I'm shooting for someone else. Sometimes I'm working with him as a DP. Sometimes it's the uh, DP director relationship. But uh, for this project, I got involved quite early on. There was a different uh, cinematographer attached. And uh, yeah, Nash, you want to talk a little bit about the uh, very sort of like original block of filming? Yeah, sure. So uh, we actually um, shot this, kind of shot this movie twice. We uh, had one block of shooting, uh, we shot in a completely separate area of Ontario, Canada. Uh, we had um, a different DP attached, uh, our friend uh, Andrew Pelt, who was an excellent DP and director. Um, just a great guy in general. But um, during that uh, block of shooting, we shot for four weeks, probably about 60-70% of the film. Um, we just had a lot of, you know, being a low-budget indie, you're going to have problems. But this just seemed to be like an unprecedented amount of problems. Whether it be uh, weather or illness or... I, I, it's really... My trauma is just going to be Louise. <laughs> but uh, when we were done and we, were, uh, we did an assembly of the footage that we had, and it just it didn't feel right. It's just like we weren't quite hitting the dough. Our monster man didn't look as good as we thought it should. Um, we had uh, uh, an issue where we actually, um, our main character, the guy playing the monster himself, uh, had a sudden illness and had to be replaced. So with our main character being replaced, we were thinking like, okay, he's in a costume, it's gonna be okay, but the physicalities of the performance was just too different. Um, even though every replacement was, gave a great job. So we uh, made the decision to uh, essentially reshoot the film using what would remain of our budget um, after essentially shooting practical photography. So it was, it's, we had to go completely strip down, strip down the crew. Um, luckily, we didn't have to like incur some expenses because, uh, for instance, like the cast, uh, any of the death scenes or any of the prosthetics that we had to build, uh, we already had built, so we could like recycle those. Um, but unfortunately, one of the things that happened was uh, our uh, original DP, uh, his day job was shooting um, uh, Dark Side of the Ring for Vice, and then they offered him a uh, position directing 
the next couple of seasons. So it was something he couldn't pass up. And you know, we were all very, very happy for him. But Pierce, during the original Broke Block, was shooting all the BTS, um, documenting all the issues that happened. Uh, so he was, and since we worked with him before, he was so familiar with like what we were doing and what we were trying to achieve. Uh, that when we had to replace Andrew, he stepped in and uh, just did an excellent job. It was it was no slight to uh, Andrew's work either, but whoa, there we go. Uh, yeah, it was no slight to Andrew's work. He did a phenomenal job, but also wasn't trying to uh, replicate any of his style or shots. It was just it was like reapproaching the film from the ground up, basically, and being just looking at everything from a completely fresh perspective before we went back to uh, continue uh, photography. I cannot fathom making that decision, being 60% uh, into an independent film and deciding, uh, okay, we're going to reshoot it all. Let's talk about that process a little bit. Um, it was, uh, I mean, it wasn't a difficult decision to make because it's such a flippant thing to say that we're just going to reshoot the movie. Uh, and then I just left it to my producers, just like, figure that out, guys. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that, like, we just had to make some decisions. We, uh, you know, one of the things that we did experience was um, that uh, due to the nature of the film itself, you know, shooting remote locations, grabbing the luggage and all of this equipment, uh, we'd have to, I'm sure it's going to talk about this in detail later, but had to, you know, get a different, more manageable camera package. Um, whittle down the crew uh, pretty like pretty excessively, and then um, uh, one of the other big decisions was like that helped us out was was shoot in my hometown uh, because I kind of really like we're the area of Northern Ontario that I grew up in mind. Uh, let's just shoot there. I'll call in every favor from every family member and friend that I have, and. Uh, just try to get it done that way. And uh, that, that original blog was invaluable too because it, it let us know what wasn't what it let us know what was, but more importantly, what wasn't working, so we were able to like reapproach things, refigure it out. And it also wasn't for nothing because we still end up with one shot from that block in the film. Yeah. One shot. The most expensive shot in the entire movie is an over the shoulder shot uh, <laughs> looking at another character. But it cost Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. <laughs> so we're keeping that shot. I got you. Yeah, and it also helped that, like, I think, like, so much of the crew uh, were our filmmakers as well as tech patients. So, like, anytime, like, everybody uh, was able to, like, say, like, give ideas to, uh, to, like, how to receive, like, one of the deaths, uh, for instance, like, like the final one, um, all came in, like was from our uh, camera effects technician. He was like, just like it would be really funny if this happened. And I was like, yes, I would. Let's let's throw this in. Um, but he didn't like our. our uh, we had a couple of uh, first ADs, but um, they're they're all filmmakers too. So like being able to like contribute ideas as far as like you know knowing what I like, was heading at providing opportunities to like more easily uh, succeed in this event was like so necessary for, like going forward at all. It's like we, we went into all the scenes have our game plan, but of course the nature of filmmaking is you can go in with all the storyboards or game plan you want on location or just on the day, stuff is not gonna work. So being able to have like brainstorm and still be able to stick with the bit but rework it on the day was like yeah it, we it, it was crucial for the production at what point does that sort of uh improvise or yeah that's a great idea for your ending death like what point of production does that come to allow you the scramble to deal with that oh well i mean like that was actually like for instance that was uh the the only reason that this movie really happened it was like it was an idea that it had for quite a while but uh, while we were shooting my uh, our, our friend Steve Kostansky's uh, we're doing prosthetics for his uh, film Psycho Gorehand um, uh, we were all just like chilling out talking about movies um, talking about horror films and just thinking about like what's a different angle for a slasher and I said well I've always had this angle 
And so like it was literally like all our all the behind the scenes technicians. So like the effects guy, Mike Hamilton, uh, who was on our film was also that guy on uh, Psycho Gorman. And so like as we were just spitballing back and forth, he was just like, This would be funny. So this was actually like um even before the script was written, that like ideas like that would come up because yeah, we're we're a pretty tight knit group of uh of filmmakers and creators and all work on each other's stuff, so and continuing that trend on the set of Violent Nature, uh, Steve was just, we're all joking around, and that's where the concept of his next film came from. So the tradition's continuing. So I'm sure maybe your next film might come from uh, Steve Zewis. Very likely, yeah. <laughs> nice, I love it. I want to be in some of your behind-the-scenes discussions. See if I can get my next film. We're spending so much time with this character and looking at this yes. character. It was very important to be able to dole out the details of his physique and figure. Yeah. So it was like and, and characters are re- are reacting to what he looks like. And we want to be able to just like let them react and not let the audience know what they're reacting to. Uh, so like stage one him coming out of the grave. Stage two is he finds his like slash mirror. And then at one point in time we did want to just reveal everything, but like we wanted to save that. We wanted to save like, okay, what are all these other characters actually looking at? So um, there's only one actual reveal of who he is in the movie uh, at this special time. Uh, <laughs> it's the one moment where um, it's he's slightly humane. Um, but uh, because of that, we just had to make a lot of decisions of like how we're going to shoot this. A lot of it is following like third person from behind. Um, and then we're focusing in specific moments, like revealing his hands, revealing, you know, his weapons, or even just um, keeping him in the shadow, keeping him in silhouette. It, you it, know, was it, fine, it was a fine balance of finding shots where it's just like, okay, this would play good as a silhouette because it's really about his form here, very a little bit more detail to kind of fill bits of his hands, to feel like the texture of the weapons, to feel like how dirty his clothes are. It was all about just finding the sort of the right textures of, uh, that we could reveal off his character. Yeah, and it also just, when you're doing that, when you're, you know, putting up these restrictions upon yourself, it, I find that it really does create a, you know, a more significant and impactful image to, or something more memorable for the audience. You, it's also a really delicate balance of exposition and, and getting us to understand this character and where he comes from without being able to cut to other actors talking about him. So we're getting sort of off-camera dialogue, we're getting people in the distance talking about the legend of this that's uh, very delicately handled. Uh, were you worried about that aspect of it or, or worried about... Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I mean... We do use a lot of uh, tropes that are already established from other slashers. Uh, and that is a tool that we use to communicate information. So, like, you kind of are familiar with, like, okay, this character is this character, this character is this character. Um, I've seen this before in other movies, but it, we use that as a launching point for us to be able to, like, talk or discover more about our actual slasher. So, uh, because we're following the slasher the whole time, it's all the stories revealed through background chatter of like situations that he's like walking into before he uh, you know kills some unsuspecting person. So it's like they'll be talking about um, you know their own situation that's going on because there's always like some sort of relationship problem, some sort of like asshole boyfriend or something like that. So we're we're picking up on all of that and then. Uh, at getting that whole story communicated. Um, but uh, so the sound design was actually incredibly important for this film. Uh, but at one point in time, like our, our masers, who were amazing, um, they followed my direction uh, to a halt where I was like, I really want to have the sound be in the perspective of our slasher the entire time. And so, like, you know, everything's coming in at the distance. But that just became. Like, we unknowingly created a white noise machine that just, like, it was the first time I watched it where I'm just like, I'm really tired. I, 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 I uh, um, so we, we, you know, played around with that and just, you know, I'll increase the volume to let 
the audience like get some story, be able to attach something to it or something. Uh, yeah, just getting everybody something a little more involved. And going back to a second, what Ash said about all these characters taking such inspiration from traditional slashes, uh, that's one of the things like we are very aware of. Like so much of the mythos of the film is, uh, you know, tied to these these classic films that the the heart here you love so much. So it was also a conscious decision on our part not to have this movie look like those movies and try to have it be its own sort of fresh sort of take. There's a roller coaster on outside of uh, uh, Toronto. And it's like this, it's amazing roller coaster. It's super smooth, but it's, you kind of come off of it being like, you don't really know how to describe it because it's so abstract. You don't really feel the speed, you don't feel connected to anything. But at the same time, they had this old rickety wooden roller coaster. That once you get on that thing, like, you feel it. Yeah. <laughs> you feel like you're on a roller coaster. You feel the speed, you are connected to your surroundings. And it's kind of terrifying, but at the same time, like, it, it, I don't know, it just makes a, a difference for me to, like, feel it's a feel like that camera's in that space. Especially now, but, like, so much stuff, like, if you have, like, that statue of your volumes, and everything's just getting, like, too clean and too perfect. So having, like, a little bit of imperfections in the movement of the image, just to make things feel live and natural, was very important to us. I, I gotta ask about lenses, because I'm a lens nerd. Um, what, what did you use on this board? Uh, our primary lenses were an uh, old um, set of uh, Canon FD prongs. I just found that the uh, the quality that they had was uh, it, it wasn't too vintage, but it also wasn't too critical like some modern glass can be. And uh, yeah, just using those it gave us like a sort of slightly impressionistic look that helped with the film, but it also didn't. Yeah, it it just it, it really worked well for the um, rings that we had and all the nature, and it just it also looked great on drawing. And they were also uh, small enough and like light enough that we could use them on the package without any sort of um, issues with uh, the rates that stabilize and get your binge with that. Yeah, really nice, compact, beautiful package. Uh, and some really nice extended depth of field in using this in dark night situations around the campfire. Um, with a very limited package, it's really beautiful work at that. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, one of the things we definitely looked at ahead of time is like we referenced and looked at a lot of stuff shot at 16 millimeter. So we, we definitely love that kind of like deeper depth of feel like that was 16 millimeter beside who just has by nature of the uh, format size. And uh, when we were looking into cameras ahead of time, we were trying to send the full frame stuff. And full frame just didn't feel right for this project. We wanted like a uh, super 35 sensor, just like the sweet spark where we did. That sort of like good deep depth of builds when they do it all. Because it gets weird because we don't really have a lot of scenes in traditional coverage. So we'll have sequences where it's like Johnny's just like a key to in front of us, but at the same time, like way, way off the distance, something is happening that the audience sees the clock. And so it was very important about finding that uh, depth of build that was deep enough that you know, we, we could still direct the audience's eye to start, but at the same time, like not lose out of the details or the bread because we also wanted to feel like the woods itself. It didn't make much sense for us to go out for his remote locations and just had such shallow depth of field that all we can see is this guy walking in a jacket where we wanted to see those mates. Yeah. Chris, you've got a, a bit of a background in uh, dabbling with prosthetics and makeup. Um, not getting away any, any spoilers, but uh, you do not disappoint in this film with creative murders and uh, <laughs> violence, awesome sequences. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about your backgrounds uh, with prosthetics and sort of uh, the way that you approached the violence in this in a violent nature? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I have a background uh, in prosthetic effects. Um, it's, you know, just growing up being a horror fan, something I was always interested in, and um, making like even just like or shorts on like VHS with my parents' camcorder, um, you know, wanting to do something a little, you know, wanting to show some blood, show some stuff. I just learned from, uh, you know, any like bank or magazine at the time, you know, uh, special features on DVDs were really big. So I was like just devouring those, trying to figure out how to do prosthetics. And then, uh, yeah, I just got into the uh, industry doing a lot of like just my own stuff to begin with but then um meeting other directors and prosthetics artists like uh and steve kostansky um 
And uh, yeah, we, we both have an approach to shooting prosthetics where, um, you know, being in the industry, being working on TV shows, working on prosthetics, like any kind of gags, you know, you work for weeks on something. And then when it comes time to shoot it, you're on set and they're telling you like, yeah, we're gonna get this before lunch. Don't worry, we'll be going home early. And then it's always the last shot pushed to the day and you have one take and it's never great. And then they just go and work with VFX anyway. So uh, we've been, uh, our approach has been all the effects are kind of just a whole other new look themselves. Anytime we have to incorporate an actor, we'll shoot out like the actor's coverage for it, like with any specific location we need. But uh, afterwards, uh, it's, it's almost like a completely separate unit where we have just a time, we're not under uh, a schedule for the actor having to leave, and it just gives us kind of a like dabble in preventing yeah. things. I've uh, throughout my career, like I've done a lot of secondary shooting for different films, and like my sort of up to this point, a lot of my work has been filming practical effects for, uh, for films and just uh, like uh, prosthetic effects. And like they are so amazing, I have such huge respect for the talent. But it's it's like any performance; you need time to coax the performance out of like these these effects. You can't just go in and be like, okay, one one take, it does a thing, and then we can just like get cut, right? But like, no, you need time to work at the performance. But being able to capture stuff in camera, it just it creates such a, a visceral feeling from the audience that is so important, especially in this type of film. And also because like sometimes you might only have one take because of like, you know, it's a, it's a destructive medium in a lot of cases where you're building something, you're, you're, you know, you're building a sandcastle and then it's like you're waiting for the ocean to come in and just tear it down. So you have one take at it and the prep time of doing a second unit where we're like ironing out every detail, knowing that we've got one shot at this, let's make sure that everything's plugged in. Uh, and yeah, Everything's hooked up and we're ready to go. This next interview is with med surge nurse turned actor Salu Sisse. Oh my gosh, he is incredible. He is in a film that debuted at Sundance. Like I said, he is a legit second act actor. He's originally from Sierra Leone, now based in Los Angeles. And our little conversation that we have is absolutely Oh, what a gem of a human being. I had such a great time chatting with him, so much so that I 100% need to have him for a full, quote-unquote, normal episode of this podcast because he has such an incredible story to tell. And I felt like we just got a little teeny, teeny tip of the iceberg of his beautiful story. And I definitely want to know more, and I know you will as well. Please enjoy this little teaser from second act actor himself, Salusa Say. The film that you're with, have you been able to do a lot of promotion of yourself as an actor? I've done so much press, you know, okay. and I've also taken the liberty of hiring publicists. And I, I really go, I really push hard. So I not only have publicists in LA, yeah. I'm based, Michael yeah. Yoda, Rachel Aseni, uh, Grace Topolian. That's yeah. in one office. Yeah. I've also got a lady in the South. Yeah. And I've also got uh, an amazing lady, Olivia uh, Shuong of Jade East PR in the UK. So. And did you find that res really helpful for you? And I think so. I think so. Very helpful. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of these uh, podcast interviews, nice. a lot of live interviews, um, and really getting not just my name out there, but also getting people familiar with my work. You know what I mean? Nice. Yeah. Which is what I want. I want people to see me on a screen. Especially people in the industry, other yeah. writers, directors, producers, and other actors. You know? Do you find coming from a, a career that isn't acting, right? Or like, do you find it really hard to promote yourself? Not really. No? And I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of it has to do with self-discipline. I feel like absolutely studying. I spent mm -hmm. just as much time, actually more time, on IMDb, for example, scrolling through reading about who's, pro who's producing what film or what actors attached to what project and that sort of thing and just educating myself. Yeah. As you know, like when you're in school for medicine and you're studying, uh, whether it's uh, uh, chemistry or biology, it's a lot of sitting down and studying, yes. right? And we've had some sleepless nights where you got an exam the next day <laughs> and you have to prep, right? You got to be ready. Yeah. I feel like it's really just set me up for what I'm doing now. Mm, that's so interesting. And I, what I find really interesting about that is... 
think so many people find, because this is such a quote-unquote whimsical career path, right? right? Creative, you're an actor, you could, it, it's not, it's not taken seriously as a business, I find, where that is such a great business mindset, I think. Mm -hmm. And treating it as you would any other job, you have to educate yourself. Yes. And I think it's hard when this is a career where there are stories of people who were plucked from obscurity and never had to do any training and became a famous actor. Right, right. Where in your career as you're a surgical nurse, is that correct? Yeah, medicine, right, medicine, telemetry, yeah. You can't just get from obscurity and say, now you're going to do this job. No. It's so not to be in the operating room. No. Where acting is, so it, people don't take it as seriously, the education piece of it. They really don't. And I'm glad you bring up education. I'm in training two days a week, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, with a lady named Ivana Chubbick. Mm. Same lady who trained Ivana Chubbick when she won her Oscar for Monsters Ball. So, I mean, that amount of training, that amount of focus, also, it's pricey, right? Yeah. I mean, I do private coaching with a lady named Crystal Lee Brown. It's yeah. $100 an hour. Mm -hmm. With Ivana, it's $275 an hour. Yeah. So it's not cheap. No. So it's a lot of self-sacrifice, a lot of delayed gratification. So many people want it now, now, now. I've been at this for nine years. Nine years from November 17th of 2014 when I moved to LA to now. And things are finally beginning to pick up. And now it's not an overnight thing. For sure. Even those, like you mentioned, somebody being plucked. Mm. They're still, if they're not careful, they'll fall off. It's why we have these one-hit wonders, right? Where they make a great record or a great hit and they disappear. It's like, where do they go? Yeah. Well, you have other people. Like, I'll give an example of like an artist like Drake, right? If we want to talk music, where this guy's constantly putting in, you know, producing things and making music. And that's why he's relevant. Yes. You have to be able to... Put yourself out there and just and just be able to do the work, you know what I mean? And not be scared of that aspect. So tell me a little bit more about what brought you to where you are here now. How did you get here? Your story. Absolutely. So, you know, um, when I was 15, my father moved back to Africa, Sierra Leone, West Africa. And when I went to college, he came back for a bit, I'd say, when I was around 17, 18, and then he left again. So I feel like a part of me's got this, there's this little boy inside me that really wants to be seen by his dad. You know, and I think that's a major reason why I went into film and TV. Yeah. I remember one of the last things that my dad saw me do was improv in college. And I remember him being really thrilled, laughing, having a good time, him and my mom. However, my mom knew he was going to be leaving soon. And so her thing is, you need to do a degree uh, in nursing so you have a solid job and a good income. Yeah. Whereas my dad said, you know, this kid's good at what he's doing. Let him do it. So I think a part of me is really trying to satisfy my father. You know what I mean? Um, so I've got that part of me that's like that little kid that just wants his dad to see him and validate him and, um, you know, have that recognition. Absolutely. And I think that's a vein that travels, I know, through a lot of people I chat with who changed careers into acting later on in life, is that they were told by well-meaning, well-intentioned people, or not, that, yeah, great, you're uh, wonderful as a child performing little plays for your family, but that's not a reasonable career path. Right. I think it's really interesting that you kind of got both worlds, right? From yeah. your mom and your dad saying, yeah, you should go the reasonable career path, but also look at the talent you have. Yes. Yeah, so tell me the decision to do, literally, you've done both, right? <coughs> I have, excuse me. Don't worry about it. I've literally done both. Luckily, um, you know, I've done, uh, I've been a nurse since 2009, yeah. December, when I graduated. So we'll call it 20, 2010. And now in 2024, it's 14 years. Yeah. I'm actually surprised, right? It goes by really fast. So fast. Um, but I'll tell you, look, I'm so grateful because when I first moved to LA, I stayed with a woman, Miss Julie Hagero. Shout out to her. She's a real estate agent. She's very fond of me. She sat me down one day at a table and she said, Salud, you should buy a house. But I'm living in East LA in the city of Downey. And I'm like, I don't want to live here in East LA. I need to be on the West Side. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's where my class is. That's where everything is. She's like, look, your first home doesn't have to be your dream home. And I'm glad I took heed. I listened to her advice and I bought my first home. And that's allowed me to, for example, you know, rent goes up every month yeah. or yeah. every year, whatever it is, right? Yeah. But with me and my mortgage, it stays the same. If I rebuy it, I can drop it down. Yes. So ultimately what I'm discussing here is uh, a foundation yes. that I've been able to have from the very beginning. Mm. And I think it's very important as artists because there's so much up and down. There's so much, I mean, your book a role, a, a recurring role. A co-star role maybe becomes a recurring role, or you shoot a movie. There's so much. There's so many variables. You know what I mean. So yes. when you finally have uh, a point in your career where there's some consistency, it's a good place to be. But 
you have to have, you have to be prepared for the dry moments yeah. where things aren't really going as, as planned. For sure. You know? And do you find what, because what I think is so frustrating for people in those dry moments and just in general is the lack of control that we have as artists. Where I think in a career, especially in, you know, the operating room, med surgery. So it's, consistent. it's consistent. It's consistent. Yes. Right? People are always going to be sick. They need orthopedic yeah. surgeries. They need cardiac. They have cardiac issues, yeah. respiratory, what have you. Yeah. So I think in those moments where things are slow, it's a good time to pick up a book and read. It's a good time for meditation. Yeah. It's a good time to create on your own, whether you're writing. Yeah. Um, it's a good time to just make sure that you're engaging in class, yeah. audition technique scene study maybe even improv yes. right yeah. so you're so you're keeping your instrument sharp absolutely do you have any advice for people who are looking to change careers later on in life or switch from a more reasonable career <laughs> path to one with more creativity like you have yes i would say make sure that your foundation is solid yeah. there's nothing worse like right now where i'm at in my career i'm doing well artistically yeah and on the business side, I'm also doing well because I've got the funds to pay for publicists. Yes. I've got the funds to fly myself to Sundance and put myself up in a hotel and, you know, support myself while I'm here. I've got the funds to go to Cannes or any other film festival where I can promote myself even further. You know what I mean? Yes. So I would say make sure that your financial wherewithal is, is, is in order, really. You know? I think that's so cheap. And I think so many people who are coming at this later in life, in England, we feel like we're behind, you know, like the train has left the station, we're trying to catch up. But I, I think we can't ignore the fact that if you have a solid foundation, especially financially, the desperation almost isn't there. Yes. As actors. Agreed. Yeah? yeah? Agreed. Agreed. So, you know, you feel more free to take um, risks. For example, when I, when I auditioned for Manadone, they tell you not to play music in your auditions. There's a lot of stuff they tell you not to do. I, you got to know the rules to break the rules, right? right? A lot of stuff in there that I did that was unconventional. Huh. But I'm glad that I did those things because I thought to myself, what would I like to see yeah. as, an, as an auditor, as a, as a casting director? What do I want to see that's going to be different from what I've seen for the past hour I've been looking at tapes? Yes. And that's what I did. I, did, I was very sexy. I had my shirt off. I was playing music. I was dancing. Yeah. And then I got onto the scene. You know, so it was very compelling. It was almost like I had a beginning, a middle, and an end. So you're right, absolutely. When you've got a solid foundation, you're not scared to take risks. You're not dependent on every job, and there's no desperation. You know, shortly after shooting Manadron, I did another show, four episodes, on a show called Broken Seeds. And I love the storyline. I got to play a father. I'm a dad. Yeah. I got to play a nurse. Check that box. Cool. Um, and a, a boxer. And this guy gets into Gehrig's disease, ALS. So I went from being extremely healthy and I got to do a physical transformation. So I lost like 15 pounds, right? We shot the end first. So I had, came in very skinny and scrawny. I got to fly my mother out to set. But direct, during COVID, the directors were nice enough to let her sit in the director's chair. And, um, you know, it was, it was just amazing experience. You know what I mean? Um, but that... I was able to do that coming off a of manager when my reps telling me, don't do that. The pay is very little. It's, it's not good. De- uh, the pay, the pay. Forget the pay. I love the artistry of it all. Yes. The fact that there's a, there's a homicide in there. There was a suicide in there. There was me boxing. There was me being sick, defecating on myself, urinating on myself. It was just beautiful to see on screen. You know, but I got to do that and showcase something completely different from manager. Yeah. You know? And I think... What makes me so happy to hear about that is we're, this is why we change careers anyway, because we're so missing that creativity. And as wooey as this sounds, that is what life is about, yes. especially in the second half of our lives. We need to do that because what else is there? I mean, it's it, legacy. Yes. And we think absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, tangible things are nice to have, right? Yeah. I've got a home in L.A. Yeah which a lot of people can't kind of say that they do, so I'm blessed and I'm grateful. However, none of that's coming with me. But what's staying behind, though, is my legacy. Yes. The films I make and the TV shows I'm on, yeah. my children can always turn on and watch their dad. You know, they can always see images of their father. You know, and that, oh my God, when I see that moves me emotionally, yeah. it really moves me. Yeah. Also showing my children that, you know, anything is possible. 
You yeah. live in yourself. You can make anything happen. It's going to be a struggle. Yeah. It's not going to be easy, but you can make your dreams come true. Oh. And that's the legacy. That's legacy. You know, because yeah. these things are nice. A nice car, a nice home. But man, that legacy, it goes on forever. That's yeah, that's so, so powerful. Yeah. And I think a big thing that I learned from another actor was, you know, he was watching himself tell his children, follow your dreams, do what, do what you love. And he, then it hit him, I'm not doing that. How can I tell my children that when I'm not doing it myself? Right. And I think showing that you are doing what you love, yes. I think, again, that is, as a child, you just, I mean, you just being able to witness that is so powerful. It really is. Yeah. It really is. And, you know, that's why when I come to these things, oftentimes I get little knickknacks and things like yeah. beanies and yeah. bags and things that I can take back to them yeah. wherever I'm at in the world, you know, whether I'm in Germany, Berlin, if I'm in New York shooting a show, if I'm in, you know, Cannes at the Cannes Film Festival, I always yeah. bring something back for them just to let them know, like, your dad really loves you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And right. And he misses you. He's thinking about you while always. This, right? Always. And I use them yeah. so much in my work, you know. Yeah. I really do. So it's, it, it makes my work a lot more riveting, a lot more heart-wrenching, and, and very nice to watch, you know, for the viewers. Yes. People want to see that. Yeah. Sure. Can you tell me about the film that brought you here to Sunday? Tell Absolutely. us the story and your role in it and how you got involved. Absolutely. So I did a picture with Adrian Brody and Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, Odessa Young's in the movie as well. And um, myself. Now, Riley Keough is an executive producer on there. Uh, and, you know, she's, she's a sweetheart. You know, she's very talented. Her and another lady named Gina Gamble, they won the Camera d'Or at France a couple of years ago. First time writer director awards. And so I auditioned, they loved me, they brought me in, which really, I always give them their credit and their kudos because they really opened the door for me. You know, it's my first big breakout role after nine years of being in Hollywood. So that film right there had its world premiere at Berlinale. I was under the impression it was going to be here last year at Sundance, but I think there was a conflict of interest because Jonathan Majors had magazine dreams where he played a bodybuilder. Now, in Manodrome, I'm a bodybuilder. Jesse Eisenberg's character is an amateur bodybuilder. He's also perplexed because he's dealing with his, you know, he's battling with his sexuality. Mm, so there's that. He's got a girlfriend at home who's pregnant. The money's in low. You know, he's not living his dream. He's a Uber driver. So, you know, and of course, you see what Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger did in Brokeback Mountain. So there's elements of that, right? There's the LGBTQ theme. There's also... Um, it's, uh, it's, 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 it gives homage to Taxi Driver, Robert De Niro's Taxi yes, Driver, oh and also Fight Club. So it's an amazing picture. That the writer-director, John Trengo, he's an award-winning writer-director. And look, everybody in this picture is with CAA. I admire and adore CAA. You know, I've read the book Powerhouse. Yes. Right, Powerhouse. Yeah. It talks about Michael Ovitz and how those guys left William Morris and developed CAA. And it's such a powerful story. It also supports my notion that, like, you have to have an obsession with what you're doing. You can't do this thing like a hobby. It's like if you're in a relationship with somebody and you, I'll, I'll call her sometimes. <laughs> I'll text her sometimes. What kind of relationship is that? But if you're like consistent, you wake up in the morning, you're like, babe, how are you? You're consistent. You text her, and you t- hey, babe, mental, mental check, emotional check. How are you feeling? Physical check. When there's a relationship with your business, with your craft, then there's a lot more, there's a, there's a higher likelihood that you're going to succeed. Well, it's going to come back on you, right? Because you're investing in the relationship. Exactly. They're going to, yeah. What yeah. you put in is what you get out. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about, for most people in my audience, again, are newer to the industry after a different career. If they would never even think in their life bingo card that Sundance would be part of it. What has it been like for you being here? It's been astronomical. I mean, <laughs> it's been a lot more than I thought it would be. Yeah. You know, the other day... I'll tell you, I was at the Audible House and I met up with Coleman Domingo. Mm-hmm. Kenya Barris was there, Coleman Domingo. It was a private sort of a gathering. Yeah. Shout out to Olivia uh, Shuang, my publicist. Uh, and it was really nice because I got to chat with him. We bonded over a film he did called Zola. And in Zola, Riley Keough was in the film as well, Taylor Page. And so I told him that, you know, Riley and I worked on Anadrome. And so we bonded over that. Yeah. Also complimented his work on... Uh, uh, Euphoria with Sam Levinson, uh, Assassination Nation. So we just bonded. So we made a connection there. Yeah. You know, he started following me. I followed him. And it's really, and this is like a place where the real connection is going to be made. Yes. 
Yes. Because success and evidence always leaves clues. So mentorship is something that's really important, right? So hopefully over the course of some time, if I have a question or a concern, I can reach out to him and say, hey, what do you think about this? And hopefully if he has the time, if time permits, he'll reach back to me and say, hey, this is what's going on. Absolutely. So in this environment, you get to meet people. You're in proximity with, I mean, I'm at the macro house with um, with, uh, Michael King. Uh, He is, no, sorry, Charles King. Oh, yeah. Charles King was an executive at CAA. One of the first black executives at CAA. Now he's developed macro. Macros, uh, they do film, they produce. I was like, that's macros. Macros here. And I mean, the fact that I was able to get on the list and go to their party or get on the list and go to like speaking engagements and listen and learn. This is a lot of connection to be made here, but I never knew for nine years. I didn't know. Well, you don't know what you don't know. So now I've been here and I plan to be here every single year. Also understand the importance of writing and producing your own content. You know, you learn, you know, it's a constant learning. It's like a nursing, they say, or any health, health field. What do you feel like? Oh, you know it all. That's when mistakes can be made and you need to become a dangerous practitioner. Totally. Absolutely. So you have to stay curious uh, and empathetic, I think. Those two things. I think artists have to stay curious and empathetic. That. Do you have anything that you are looking forward to with projects coming up? Well, yeah. You know, next month I'm going to London to work with a guy named Gerard Johnson. It's my first time in the UK. So I'm looking forward to that project. Um, I'm shooting for about a month. So end of February till end of March. So that's something that I hope folks really want to, you know, look out and see. Uh, Manadrome is now on Apple TV, Amazon Prime. So they can, Fabulous. They can see it there. Where could we see it? Yeah. Yes, so they can see yeah. it there. Nice. Yeah. Wonderful. Do you have any final words of wisdom? Yeah, you know, just have faith in yourself. Stay curious. Um, keep reading. Keep studying. Uh, ask questions. Sometimes you can feel kind of dumb when you reach out to people and you're like, oh, what's up? But you have to just, sometimes you have to, you have to be fearless. Ask questions, you know, and you'll find your tribe always. You'll find people who want to support you and, you know, edify you and build you up. I love it. This next conversation is with filmmaker and actress Amira Lopez. Oh my gosh, I met her in the best way possible. I had just finished an interview with someone at the Impact Lounge, and she was kind of watching a little bit over my shoulder and came up and introduced herself afterwards. And we struck up a conversation. It was delightful. And I said, oh my gosh, why don't we have a conversation that is recorded. Please, please, please let me interview you. And she is incredible. Please enjoy this lovely little conversation with a beautiful stranger turned friend, Amira Lopez. Okay, so I'm an actress and then also a filmmaker and director. And I actually started acting first, building myself as an actress. But then, you know, I just kind of wanted to, I wanted to change gears because I wanted to make bigger roles, especially for women that are Latina, indigenous. And I thought, well, why not get into the writing space of things? Yeah. So I started writing shorts, indies, and um, they did started getting to the festival route. And um, yeah, so I kind of, in the middle of, like, I was like in 10 years as an actress, in the middle, I switched to writing, directing, and now I do all three. So yeah. And what brought you into the acting world to begin with were you always an actor were you something else to go yeah um i've always kind of been about dress um since i was a little girl so i did a bunch of plays and uh that's how i got started so plays now a lot of us get told by our parents well-meaning people that a, a career in acting producing the entertainment industry is not a reasonable option. Go be a doctor. Go be a lawyer. Oh, my, mom, was, my mom totally wanted me to be a doctor. Really? Or a lawyer. Because my mom's a lawyer in El Salvador. Oh, so yeah. that was her thing. My mom was like, be a, like a lawyer or a doctor. And that yeah. would be amazing. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So what made you not do that? What brought you great? Honestly, I've always just wanted to um, create. I think I'm an artist at my, my soul. So whichever outlet that is, whether it's in front of the camera or behind the camera, I've always been an, an artist. And um, I used to dance, you know what I mean? So when I did plays, I did all of it. I acted, danced, and sang. So I don't know. I feel like I've always, as a little girl, always had this thing to just have for it, for it out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any advice for anyone who might be looking to switch into a yeah. more creative career? 
I would say people are going to tell you it's hard. Because yeah. everyone, that's the one thing. I, oh, it's hard. It's hard. It's difficult. Difficult. You have to do this, do that. It's going to take you a long time. Da, 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 da. But I think ultimately is if it's in your heart and soul and you have the passion for it, no matter how hard it gets, you're going to push through. And then you're going to meet the right people that come along in your path to help you out. So if, but you have to be specific on what you want and say, this is what I want to do. So then the people around you, if they hear you, they can help. So that's my best advice. And yeah, yes. And tell me what is, do you have anything that you have coming up that you'd like to promote or get excited about? Um, sorry, I have to get going. But, yeah. but but one thing I would say I'm coming up is uh, a short film and my feature coming up. Yeah. They're still on the low low, but hopefully we'll get into Sundance. So pray for that. So stay tuned. Oh, nice. But you can follow me on Instagram. Yeah. The Armida Lopez. And that's me. Thank you everyone for tuning in. And thank you everybody for allowing me to interview you, record your panel conversations, and just be a part of your Sundance experience. I so appreciate it. We will be back to our regular scheduled programming and normal, normal, air quotes, episode next week. I hope you will all tune in. Bye. Bye.